Disc 3 White People Back in the mother country in 1947, who were those people who were just beginning to adjust to a post-imperial world? They were sparser and whiter. In the years after the war, Britain contained about 10 million fewer inhabitants than live here today. The 30s had seen a fall in the birth rate, and there was much official worry about another kind of national shrinkage. In William Beveridge's famous 1942 report, launching the modern welfare state, he suggested that a bit of fast breeding was needed. With its present rate of reproduction, the British race cannot continue. To Beveridge and his generation, the British race meant white natives of these islands. Before the war, around 95% of people in Britain had been born here, and the other 5% was mostly made up of white English and Scots, whose parents had happened to be serving the empire in India, Africa or the Middle East when they were born. There were black and Asian people in Britain, but very few. In the 30s, the Indian community numbered perhaps 8,000 at most, a tenth of them doctors, intriguingly, and there were a few Indian restaurants and grocery stores in the biggest cities. There had been a tiny West Indian presence. No detailed surveys were done, but there were at most a few thousand, many of them students. Black sailors and mixed-race Laskers, along with Chinese, had been settled in Dockland areas of Liverpool, Cardiff, Bristol and London for a long time. Again, though, the numbers were small. During the war, men from the Caribbean began to arrive, serving with the British forces. There was a Jamaica squadron and a Trinidad squadron in the RAF and a West Indian regiment in the British Army. Others came to work in factories, in the countryside and on radar stations. But once the war was over, most were sent straight home, leaving an estimated permanent non-white population of about 30,000. It had been the 130,000 black American troops who made the most impact on British public opinion during the war. Despite official worries about fraternisation with coloured soldiers, they were widely welcomed and lionised. There are well-attested incidents of white GIs who tried to apply the American colour bar being mocked and challenged. After the war, almost unnoticed by the general public and passed in response to Canadian fears about the lack of free migration around the empire, the 1948 British Nationality Act dramatically changed the scene. It declared that all subjects of the king had British citizenship. This gave some 800 million people around the world the right to enter the UK. Though it seems extraordinary now, after so many decades of new restrictions on immigration, this was uncontroversial at the time for a simple reason. It was generally assumed that black and Asian subjects of the king would have no means or desire to travel to live in uncomfortable, crowded Britain. Travel remained expensive and slow. Why would they want to come anyway? Until the 50s, so few black or Asian people had settled in Britain that they were often treated as local celebrities, and officially, it was not even considered worthwhile trying to count their numbers. There were other immigrant communities. A Jewish presence had been important for a long time, in retailing, the food business and banking, everything from Marks and Spencer to Rothschild's Bank. But in the five years before the war, some 60,000 more Jews from Germany and Eastern Europe arrived here, many of them highly qualified, helping transform the scientific, musical and intellectual life of 40s Britain. When Hitler came to power in 1933, it was agreed at cabinet level to try to secure for this country prominent Jews who were being expelled from Germany and who had achieved distinction in science, medicine, music and art. Beveridge himself helped set up an organisation to help Jewish refugees, 
the Academic Assistance Council, which, using public donations, helped 2,600 intellectuals escape. No fewer than 20 of them later won Nobel Prizes, 54 were elected Fellows of the Royal Society, and 10 were knighted for their academic brilliance. In their invasion plans for 1940, the German SS reckoned the Jewish population of Britain to be above 300,000 and hugely influential. Then there were the Irish, a big group in British life after a century of steady immigration, the vast majority of it from the South. It continued through the war, despite government restrictions, as Irish people came over to fill the labour shortage left by mobilisation. Ireland's stony neutrality and her expression of sympathy at Hitler's death at the end of the war had made Eyre very unpopular with the British. Popular prejudice against the Irish continued, as it always had, and would for a long time to come. Yet none of this seemed to affect immigration, which carried on at a great rate through the 40s and 50s, running at between 30,000 and 60,000 during any given year. Whenever cabinet committees turned to the issue of migration, the Irish were excluded from debate because they were regarded as effectively indigenous. There were other, more exotic groups. By the end of the war, Britain was home to 120,000 Poles who had fled the Soviets and Nazis, many of them then serving in the British forces, notably the RAF. Most chose to stay on, and by the end of 1948, with the energetic help of government settlement officers, 65,000 had jobs in everything from coal mining to factory work. Similar tales can be told of Czechs and many other nationalities. All these, of course, were white. It would be wrong to portray Britain in the 40s as relaxed about race. Despite the horrors of the concentration camps, widely advertised in the immediate aftermath of the war, anti-Semitism was still present. The assumption that they dodged queues or somehow got the best of scarce and rationed goods erupts from diaries and letters of the time. After Jewish terrorist attacks on British servicemen in Palestine in 1947, there were anti-Jewish disturbances in several British cities, including attacks on shops and even the burning of a synagogue, mimicking the actions of Nazis in the 30s. More widely, trade unions were quick to express bitter hostility to outsiders coming to take British jobs, whether they be European Jews, Irish, Poles, Czechs or Maltese. The government itself spoke without self-consciousness or embarrassment about the central importance of the British race. The multilingual, multi-hued Britain of today, with its greengrocers selling baskets of yams and its sense of turmeric and incense, in which more than 90% of us do not think you have to be white to be properly British, would have left a visitor from the immediate post-war years utterly astonished. Then, Jews and passing American servicemen apart, the composition of the country in 1945 was not much different from late medieval times. Proper drains and class distinction Patriotic pride cemented a sense of being one people, one race, with one common history and fate. But to be British in the 40s was to be profoundly divided from many of your fellow subjects by class. By most estimates, a good 60% of the nation was composed of the traditional working class. That is, they were factory workers, agricultural labourers, navvies on the roads, riveters, miners, fishermen, servants or laundry women, people in a thousand trades using their muscles and all their dependents. The workers were paid in cash, weekly. Checkbooks were a sign of affluence. People did not move much. War aside, most would spend all their lives in their hometown or village. 
though the 30s had produced modest migrations, such as from industrial Scotland and Wales to the English home counties. The sharp sense of class distinction came from where you lived, how you spoke, and it defined what entertainments you might enjoy. The war had softened class differences a little and produced the first rumblings of the coming cultural revolution. Men and women from widely different backgrounds found themselves jumbled together in the services. On the home front, middle-class women worked in factories, public schoolboys went down the mines, and many working-class women had their first experiences of life beyond the sink and the street. In uniform or in factories, working-class or lower-middle-class men could find themselves ordering former well-spoken toffs around. Blimps, the older, more pompous upper-class officers, became a butt of popular humour, a symbol of dying old Britain. With skill shortages and a national drive for exports, wages rose after the war. The trade unions were powerful and self-confident, particularly when the new Labour government repealed the laws that had hampered them ever since the general strike of 1926. Three years after the war, they achieved their highest ever level of support. More than 45% of people who could theoretically belong to one did so, and there were some 8.8 .8 million union members. In other European countries at this time, trade unions were fiercely political, communist, socialist or Roman Catholic. In Britain, they were not. The Communist Party, deprived of any real part of parliamentary politics, spent much of its energy and money building support inside the unions and was beginning to win elections for key posts. But in general, British trade unionism remained more narrowly focused on the immediate cash and hours agenda of its members. This did not mean British trade unions were quiet because so many of their most experienced and older shop stewards and organisers had effectively gone to work for the government during the war, or had joined up to fight, a new generation of younger, more hot-headed shop stewards, men in their twenties or even teens, had taken control of many workplaces. The seeds of the great British trade union battles of later decades were sown and watered during the forties. The core of the old working class, which had depended for jobs on coal, steel and heavy manufacturing, would eventually have a grim time as these industries first struggled and then failed in the decades to come. But this was not obvious after the war. The shipyards of the Clyde, Belfast and the Tyne were hard at work. The coal fields were at full stretch. London was still an industrial city, and the car-making and light engineering areas of the West Midlands were on the edge of a time of unprecedented prosperity. We were a nation of brick terraces. It was not until the next two decades that many of the traditional working-class areas of British cities would be replaced by high-rise flats or sprawling new council estates. The first generation of working-class children to get to university was now at school, larger and healthier than their parents, enjoying the dental care and spectacles provided by the young National Health Service. But for the most part, working-class life was remarkably similar to working-class life in the 30s. No televisions, cars, foreign holidays, fitted kitchens, foreign food, service sector jobs had yet impinged on most people's lives. Politicians assumed most people would stay put and continue to do roughly the same sort of job as they had done before the war. Rent acts and planning directives were the tools of ministers who assumed that the future of industry would be like its past, only more so. More ships, more coal, more cars, more factories. The class who would do best out of the wartime changes was to be the middle class, a fast-growing minority. Government bureaucracy had grown hugely and would continue to do so. Labour's welfare state would require hundreds of thousands of new white-collar jobs, 
administering national insurance, teaching, running the health service. Even the colonial office vastly expanded its staff as the colonies disappeared, giving one of its officials, C. Northcott Parkinson, the idea for Parkinson's Law, that work expands to fill the time available. Studies of social mobility, such as the major one carried out in 1949, are notoriously crude and have to be taken with a pinch of salt. But they suggest that while working-class sons generally followed their fathers into similar jobs, there was much more variation among middle-class children. Labour might have intended to help the workers first, but education reform was helping more middle-class children get a good grammar school education. A steadily growing number stayed at school until 15, then 18. So, perceptibly, the old distinctions were softening. The culture was a little more democratic. Increasing numbers would make it to university too, an extra 30,000 a year by 1950. The accents of Birmingham and Wales, the West Country and Liverpool would challenge the earlier linguistic stamp of middle-class respectability. The culture of public radio would bring literature and music to much wider audiences. The post-war humour of Tommy Handley and Round the Horn would be as enjoyed by the suburbs as by the palaces. Churchill himself had told Harrow schoolboys that one effect of the war was to diminish class differences. Sounding almost like a new Labour politician, he said to them as early as 1940 that The advantages and privileges that have hitherto been enjoyed by the few shall be far more widely shared by the many. The Old Order But not quite yet. The ruling class was still the ruling class. Despite the variety of the 1945 cabinet, Britain in the 40s and 50s was a society run mostly by cliques and groups of friends who had first met at public schools and Oxbridge. Public school education remained the key for anyone hoping to make a career in the city, the civil service or the higher echelons of the army. Schools such as Eton, Harrow and Winchester might educate only some 5% of the population, but they still provided the majority of political leaders, including many of Labour's post-war cabinet. Parliamentary exchanges of the period are full of in-jokes about who was a Wickhamist and who an Etonian. Briefly, it had seemed that such schools would not even survive the war. Boarding schools had been in enough of a financial crisis for some to face closure through bankruptcy. Churchill's own Harrow was one, along with Marlborough and Lansing, though all struggled on. More generally, there was a belief that public schools had contributed to failures of leadership in the 30s and right up to the early defeats of the war. When the Tory minister R.A. Butler took on the job of education reform during the war, he contemplated abolishing them and folding them all into a single state school system. Had that happened, post-war Britain would have been a very different country. But Butler, intimidated by Churchill, backed off. A watered-down scheme would have seen Eton and the rest obliged to take working-class and middle-class children, paid for by the local authorities, but this quickly fizzled out too. The public schools stayed. Attlee, devoted to his old school, had no appetite for abolition. Grower schools were seen as a way of getting bright working-class or middle-class children to Oxbridge and a few other universities, so that they could buttress the ruling cliques. One civil servant described the official view as being that children were divided into three kinds. It was sort of platonic. There were golden children, silver children, and iron children. The problem for the old ruling order was whether the arrival of a socialist government was a brief and unwelcome interruption which could be sat out, or whether it was the beginning of a calm but implacable revolution. 
the immediate post-war period, with its very high taxation, was a final blow for many landowners. Great country houses like Knoll and Stourhead had to be passed over to the National Trust. It was hardly a revolutionary seizure of estates, yet to some it felt that way. Tradition was being nationalised, with barely a thank you. In 1947, the magazine Country Life protested bitterly that the aristocratic families had been responsible for civilization in Britain. It has been one of the services of those currently termed the privileged class, to whom, with strange absence of elementary good manners, it is the fashion not to say so much as a thank you when appropriating that which they have contributed to England. Even more, an Aravise rather than the proper toff, sitting in his fine house in the Gloucestershire village of Stinchcombe, struggled with the dilemma. In November 1946, he considered fleeing England for Ireland. Many richer people did leave Britain in the post-war years, though more often for Australia, Africa, or America. Why go? War asked himself. The certainty that England as a great power is done for, that the loss of possessions—he is talking of the colonies—the claim of the English proletariat to be a privileged race, sloth and envy must produce increasing poverty. This time, the cutting down will start at the top. Until only a proletariat and a bureaucracy survive. A day later, however, he was having second thoughts. What is there to worry me here in Stinchcombe? I have a beautiful house furnished exactly to my taste. Servants enough, wine in the cellar. The villagers are friendly and respectful. Neighbours leave me alone. I send my children to the schools I please. Apart from taxation and rationing, government interference is negligible. Yet the world felt as if it was changing somehow. Why he wonders is he not at ease? Why does he smell the reek of the displaced persons camp? Many more felt just the same. Noel Coward said immediately after Labour's 1945 win, "I always felt that England would be bloody uncomfortable in the immediate post-war period, and it is now almost a certainty." These shivery intimations of change would have some substance, though it would happen more slowly and have little to do with Attlee or Bevan. The old British class system, though it retained a medieval timeless air, much exploited by novelists, depended in practical terms on the empire and the global authority Britain was just about to lose. Disgusted of Tunbridge Wells would soon become shorthand for the returnees from Malaya or Rhodesia. A pervasive air of grievance and abandonment would hang about the right of British politics for decades. Meanwhile. Old society events like the Varsity rugby match, the boat race, the Henley Regatta, and Ascot quickly returned after the war, and indeed reached the height of their popularity. Young conservative dances were where the better off went to find partners. The most famous actors and actresses were able to carry on a lavish lifestyle hidden from the taxman. London clubland carried on almost as in the twenties. The capital's grandest restaurants, some of which are still going, such as the Savoy Grill and the Ivy, were again crowded with peers, theatrical impresarios, exiled royalty, and visiting American movie stars. In the upper-class diaries of the day, there are complaints about a rising tide of common behaviour, the end of good taste, and the regrettable influence of Americans and Jews. Under Attlee, Britain remained a country of private clubs and cliques, ancient or ancient-seeming privileges. Rituals and hierarchies. In the workplace, there was a return to something like the relationships of pre-war times, with employers' organisations assuming their old authority and influence, at least some of the time, in Whitehall. 
Inside the new nationalised industries, the same sort of people continued to manage, and the same us-and-them relationships reasserted themselves remarkably easily. In the city, venerable commanding merchant bankers with famous names would be treated like little gods. Stiff collars, top hats, and the uniforms of the medieval livery companies were still seen, even among the grey ruins of post-Blitz London. Younger bankers and accountants deferred utterly to their elders. Newspaper owners would sweep up to their offices in chauffeured Rolls-Royce cars and be met by saluting doormen. The Times was soon full of advertisements for maids and other servants. Lessons in speaking the King's English were given to aspiring actors and broadcasters. Much debate was had about the proper way to pour tea, refer to the lavatory and lay the table. Physicians in hospitals swept into the wards, followed by trains of awed, indeed frightened, junior doctors. At Oxford colleges, formal dinners were compulsory, as was full academic dress, and the tenured professors hobbled round their quads as if little had changed since Edwardian times. All of this was considered somehow the essence of Britain, or at least of England. Nasher George and his girls So too was the last grand monarchy in Europe, the only remnant of the extended family of former German princelings which had once enjoyed power from Siberia to Berlin, Athens to Edinburgh. After the national trauma of the abdication crisis, George VI had established a reassuringly pedestrian image for the family which now called itself simply the Windsors. In private, the king expressed fiercely right-wing views, falling into rages or gnashes at the pronouncements of socialist ministers. In public, he was a diffident patriarch, much loved for his tongue-tied stoicism during the Blitz, when Buckingham Palace received several direct hits. There had been cautious signs of royal modernisation, with Princess Elizabeth being used to make patriotic radio broadcasts and later joining the ATS, photographed in battle dress and even mingling anonymously with the crowds on VE Day. The King and Queen, though, ran what was in all essentials an Edwardian court well into the fifties. Every March, teenage virgin girls from aristocratic or merely wealthy families would be presented to the Queen wearing three ostrich feathers in their hair. Then they would begin the season, a marathon four-month round of balls and dinners during which, it was hoped, they would find a suitable man to marry. These debutantes would often have been sent to finishing school in Switzerland, where they would have learned how to walk properly, speak French and run a household according to the old manner. The royal presentation dated back to 1780 and would eventually be ended by the Queen in 1958. Prince Philip opined that it was bloody daft, while Princess Margaret complained we had to put a stop to it. Every tart in London was getting in. It continued at a nearby hotel where, in eccentric British fashion, the girls still arrived to curtsy to a six-foot-tall birthday cake rather than the monarch. Initially, it was unclear how well the monarchy itself would fare in post-war Britain. The leading members of the family were popular, and Labour ministers were careful never to express any republicanism in public. Indeed, there is almost no sign of it in their private diaries either. But there were many Labour MPs pressing for a less expensive, stripped-down, more contemporary monarchy on Scandinavian lines. Difficult negotiations took place over the amount of money provided by cash-strapped taxpayers. Yet the Windsors triumphed, as they would again, with an exuberant display which cheered up many of their tired, drab subjects. The wedding of the future Queen Elizabeth and the then Lieutenant Philip Mountbatten in 1947 was planned as a public spectacle. Royal weddings had not been so organised in the past. 
This was an explosion of colour and pageantry in a Britain that had seen little of either for ten years, a nostalgic return to luxury. Presents ranging from racehorses to cigarette cases were publicly displayed, grand cakes made, and a wedding dress by Norman Hartnell created out of clinging ivory silk, trailed with jasmine, smilax, syringa, and rose-like blossoms, encrusted with pearls and crystals. There had been interesting arguments before the wedding about patriotism, complaints about the silk having come from Chinese worms, and a rather over-effusive insistence on Philip's essential Britishness. The nephew of Lord Mountbatten was sold to the public as thoroughly English by upbringing, despite his being an exiled Greek prince, a member of the Greek Orthodox Church, and having many German relatives. In the event, Philip's three surviving sisters were not invited to the wedding, all of them being married to Germans. He showed himself wryly prepared to accept all this, though he was reported to have annoyed the king by curtsying to him at Balmoral when he saw him wearing a kilt. The wedding was a radio event still, rather than a television one, though newsreel films of it packed out cinemas around the world, including in devastated Berlin. In its lavishness and optimism, it was an act of British propaganda and celebration for bleak times, sending out the message that despite everything, Britain was back. The wedding and the later coronation reminded the club of European royalty how few of them had survived as rulers into the post-war world. Dusty uniforms and slightly dirty tiaras worn by exiles were much in evidence. The Queen's younger sister, Princess Margaret, remarked that people who had been starving in little garrets all over Europe suddenly reappeared. The Look of the Forties History is mostly written about wars and politics, and then, after that, about the lives of people as expressed through schools, employment, and so on. Outside official history are the lives we actually lead, more marked by births, love affairs, illnesses, deaths, friendships, and coincidences than by public events. Those are the personal histories depicted in novels, films, and poems. But something is missing, because we also live surrounded by stuff, Rooms, chairs, plates, curtains, bags of pasta, bowls, televisions, and beyond that, offices, shopping centres, roads cluttered with signs, adverts and cars, all of which changes constantly and colours or shapes the world in which our smaller histories happen. For the consumer society, changing brands and ads are the scents which suddenly bring back a moment in childhood or later. We walk through life, marking it off with a new rug, or the tune for a drinks commercial. In the forties, there were far fewer brands and a glaring insufficiency of stuff. There was a shortage of furniture, cups, plates, lights, curtains, towels, bicycles, radios, you name it, you couldn't find it. The famous brands from before the war, whether for soap, cooking materials, clothes or cars, were rather desperately still reminding people that they would return as soon as possible. There was a natural tug back to the lost world of pre-war Britain, the designs and flavours people had been familiar with. Art Deco moulds from ten years earlier were pressed back into manufacturing service. Old pot and pan designs were given a lick of cheerful paint and put back on sale. The vacuum cleaners and toasters which did arrive in shops had a sturdy, clunky, almost defiantly ugly look. But there was a strong push in the other direction, towards a new Britain that would look and feel brighter, cleaner, more rational, more open. This was partly driven by politics. 
Ministers wanted the slums replaced by airy communal housing and schools which would be three-dimensional expressions of a less fusty, cluttered nation. Labour believed in the public sphere and in planning. That meant straight lines and big spaces. In these years, public housing far outpaced private housing, and taste followed the money. Changes in technology and the shortages of traditional materials like wood after the war drove architects and designers to express those political beliefs through brick and concrete, steel-framed windows and flat roofs. The prefab homes being hastily built in former aircraft factories may have been a stopgap, but something about their simplicity chimed with the mood. It was the coming, cut-price British version of the modernist architecture, sculpted from the new concrete and steel rod systems developed on the continent before the war, and brought here by refugee, generally left-wing, architects. But what would go into these flats and houses? The designer, Robin Ray, a key figure at the time, noted that the Council of Industrial Design had been formed in 1944, but its power remained until the early 50s, partly because of tax incentives. We naively felt that modern town planning and enlightened design of buildings and products would transform the environment and enhance the lives of people. Progress was made in many areas, helped by the socialist government. This meant a stream of new-looking furniture, fabrics, crockery and rugs designed to fill the new-looking homes. There was not a surplus of much after the war, but there were surpluses of materials intended for warplanes or landing craft or indeed troops. So perspex, developed for gun turrets and bombers, was tried out for tabletops and even women's shoes. Royal Air Force uniform material was dyed green or brown and used to cover sofas and armchairs. There was a great amount of aluminium, which could be effectively used for lightweight chairs and tables. Laminated wood techniques, steel rods and latex became popular. After the drab colours of wartime, there was a yearning for brightness. Designers responded with abstract, whimsical and cubist patterns in primary colours. Better-looking cooking pots, mugs, lights and cutlery were advertised, the first of them in the 1946 Britain Can Make It exhibition at the Victoria and Albert Museum, which had been emptied of its treasures during wartime. The show was quickly nicknamed Britain Can't Have It by disgruntled citizens, but its design work was hugely influential not least on Scandinavians, who returned home and started manufacturing similar designs, which would be bought in large quantities by the British over the next decade. A less familiar version of a story that would be repeated with cameras, motorcycles and aircraft. The result of the new designs, on show again in the Festival of Britain in 1951 at the end of Labour's era, was to decorate austerity with a sharp-edged, spindly, brittle and optimistic look one that is now as securely of its era as lava lamps or bean bags stamped the 70s. Some of the design now looks rather cold, perhaps it never truly caught on. But some of it, from the Roehampton flats overlooking Richmond Park to the famous Jason stacking chairs, just like some of the young designers, including Terence Conran, would last. What did we look like? Study photographs or film of a reasonable number of Britons of the mid-forties and you are likely to notice striking physical differences. Above all, bulky, creased clothes, tired-looking faces and bad teeth. From working-class women with great gaps and sharp edges in their smiles to landed politicians with buck-tooth smirks, this was not a country able to take care of its appearance in the modern way. For good practical reasons, the male short back and sides 
was almost universal. Women struggled to put on a show. American troops coming over here during the war had been warned that English girls would be a bit grubby and often cannot get the grease off their hands or out of their hair. Women were advised to rub their hair with dry towels when they could not get shampoo, or to steam it over boiling water. Sponging with lukewarm water had replaced regular baths for millions of people. To put it bluntly, many British people in the forties would, by our sensitive standards, have smelt a little. Cosmetics were hard to get too. Women had used everything from cooking fat and shoe polish to soot and baby powder to make themselves up. Though bought cosmetics were still regarded as a little racy by many older women and men, others put up with squints, semi-blindness, or ugly, heavy-rimmed spectacles, which were not yet free. Buck-toothed, squinting, and not overly clean, we were in the mid-forties, very far from the scented, freshly dressed, and sometimes surgically enhanced narcissists of modern Britain. People looked older at any given age than they would today. Except the children, who, dressed in shorts, dresses, and buckle shoes, looked younger. The dirtier air of coal-fueled city life and long traditions about respectability meant coats and umbrellas were much more often worn. In the city, on the football terraces, and among women shopping, hats were almost universal. Photographs are a vivid reminder of how creased and rumpled the clothes of even quite well-off people looked. It was not only the war. These were still the days before easy dry cleaning and almost universal washing machines at home. In a country whose workforce was overwhelmingly manual, men's clothes were a straightforward marker of class and occupation: heavy jackets, thick wool trousers, leather boots for most, three-piece suits, also heavy by today's standards, with detachable collars for the middle classes. Leisure wear was hardly known for most. Simply a matter of using an older shirt or swapping a suit jacket for a tweed one. Clothes had to last longer, so were inevitably patched and mended more frequently. During the war, most of the civilian clothes produced were so-called utility clothes with special labels and designed to save material. They had fewer pockets, seams, and buckles. Turn-ups on men's trousers, then fashionable, were banned. The result of utility designs could be seen on every British street well into the fifties. Richer people still had their well-made clothes from before the war, but for the working classes, clothes rationing, which arrived in 1941, meant a struggle to stay warm and decent. Because rationing affected the quantity of clothes you could have, but not their quality, it hit the poor harder. Government campaigns about how to reinforce or reshape old clothes. Ranging from well-meant advice about reinforcing underarm areas to unraveling old woolens and re-knitting them as something else, did not improve the mood. For women faced with an almost impossible struggle to replace laddered stockings or underwear, the wartime fashions felt boxy and unattractive. Service-style caps or flat bonnets with short skirts and masculine jackets, what was called man-tailored. The dominant colours were dull. Greys or dark blues or dark browns. On their feet, women wore the heavy-soled, heavily-strapped wedgie or laced-up black leather shoes, endlessly repaired. If pregnant, they were encouraged to adapt their ordinary clothes, the ethos of make-do and mend. Their children, they complained, tended to grow far too fast for the coupons. It was a time of ankles protruding from short trousers, jackets that would barely do up. Mottled wrists hanging from outgrown jerseys.
It wasn't that the post-war British did not know how to look smart. The imported American films showed immaculately dressed icons, and the newspapers showed the richest, flashiest Britons, from Anthony Eden to the King, still beautifully tailored. But they could not afford to look smart. Some men found themselves avoiding invitations to drinks parties because they were ashamed of the state of their clothes. Women avoided brightly lit restaurants when their stockings had gone and been replaced with tea stains and drawn-on seams. Under the hats or umbrellas, below the coats and suits, the British of the forties were also considerably leaner. Wartime rationing had actually increased the health and strength of the working classes, whose diets had been nutritionally dreadful before it. By 1945, children were growing measurably taller. Fair and effective rationing of food and clothing was a prime domestic achievement of the wartime government. Organizationally, it was as complex and difficult as moving armies around the world, building instant harbors, and invading Europe. Though there was some experience from the very end of the First World War to recall, it had been done almost from scratch, replacing the market with the queue and the ration book. Distributing the same amounts of protein and starch to families on hill farms, in industrial northern terraces, and in home counties villages. If wartime opinion polling is to be believed, it was even popular in the first few years. Some 44 million ration books in buff, green, or blue were distributed. Regional offices were set up across the country, and 1,400 local food control committees were organised. Everyone had to register with a local shopkeeper. Who would get supplies of the rationed meat, ham, sugar, butter, margarine, and the rest from centrally bought supplies accumulated by the newly formed Ministry of Food? With more people working away from home, more people ate out too, though in a frugal and strictly controlled way. There was a huge expansion of school meals. Children were allocated free orange juice and cod liver oil. Works canteens and British restaurants were opened throughout urban Britain, serving plain and limited but nourishing food. A system of points, which allowed people to get tinned foods, dried fruits, and other extras when they were available, had proved one of the great successes of wartime rationing. For socialists, of course, this was more than sad necessity. It showed what could be done to achieve a fairer country. Yet, if Labour thought rationing provided any kind of popular lesson for peacetime, this would soon seem a great mistake. For though rationing was fair. It was also dull, monotonous, time-consuming, and by the end infuriating. A portion of meat each week, little larger than an iPod, was not an existence the beef-eating British could endure forever. During the war, people had resorted to all sorts of bizarre concoctions to keep up their interest. Everything from haricot beans flavored with almonds, making do as marzipan, to mashed parsnips masquerading as bananas, mock goose made of potatoes. Cooking apples and cheese, or jam made from carrots. The rich, particularly in London or when they had access to country estates, managed to avoid some of the effects of rationing. Boodle's Club in London, for example, enjoyed a steady supply from hunting and shooting members of venison, hare, rabbit, salmon, woodcock, and grouse. None of these things was rationed, though it failed to sell many portions of a stuffed and roasted beaver served on one occasion. For most, rationing was the prime example of the dreary colourlessness of wartime life. After the guns had stopped, it went on unbearably long. It was still biting hard at the end of the forties. Meat was still rationed until 
and though the poor were better fed, most people felt hard done by. Many doctors agreed. Shortly after that horrific 1947 winter was over, the British medical press carried a detailed article by a Dr. Franklin Bicknell, which argued that available foods were 400 calories short of what women needed each day and 900 calories short of what men required. In other words, everyone in England is suffering from prolonged chronic malnutrition. This was angrily disputed by Labour politicians, keen to point out the effect of all that free juice, cod liver oil, and milk on Britain's children. But people were on the side of Dr. Bicknell. Under the skin, belief. Below the skin, though, were the British of the forties fundamentally different to the British of today. This was then a religious society, though less so than in any previous time. In surveys, people overwhelmingly described themselves as Christian, but communal worship and knowledge of the Bible was falling away. The Church of England saw one of the sharpest declines in membership in the decade from 1935 to the end of the war, losing half a million communicants, down to just under three million. Another half million would be lost by 1970, and more than a million by 1990. The Roman Catholics rose in numbers after the war, perhaps because of Polish, Irish, and other European immigration, while the Presbyterians and the smaller churches also suffered decline. Though the first mosque in Britain had been built in Woking, Surrey, as early as 1889, there were few Muslims or Hindus. North of the border, the Church of Scotland, which had only finally won full independence from the British state in 1921, was more popular than the English established church. And continued to grow until the early 60s. In the absence of a Scottish Parliament, debates at the Kirk's ruling body, the General Assembly, had an authority and produced a level of newspaper interest unthinkable today. Scotland's higher religiosity, for the Catholics were strongly represented too, had its darker side in the persistence of Orange marches, bigotry, and mutual suspicion on a scale which almost matched that of Northern Ireland. To the visitor, Britain would have seemed a very obviously Christian nation, with its state and royal ceremonies, its famous and often controversial bishops, its religious broadcasting, and above all, its spires and towers in every suburb and village. The churches below those spires were at least thronged for marriages, funerals, and the special services such as Christmas and Easter. Girls and boys were likelier to be in the Christian scouts or guides. Schools had prayers at morning assembly. Sunday schools were busy. The army had its Sunday parade. Some of the most eloquent cultural moments in the life of post-war Britain had religious themes, from the rebuilding of Coventry Cathedral with its tapestries by Graham Sutherland to the popularity of Benjamin Britten's wartime choral work, A Ceremony of Carols. Perhaps Britten's best-loved serious painter was Stanley Spencer, who was turning out work in the forties and fifties based on his own idiosyncratic interpretations of biblical events. The resurrection, Christ calling the apostles, the crucifixion. John Piper was famous for his watercolors and etchings of medieval churches. John Betjeman celebrated later Victorian ones. Post-war Britain's major poet, the American-born T. S. Eliot, was an outspoken adherent to the Church of England. His last major book of poetry, Four Quartets, is suffused with English religious atmosphere. While in his verse drama *Murder in the Cathedral*, he addressed an iconic moment in English ecclesiastical history. He would win the Nobel Prize for Literature in 
C.S. Lewis had become a nationally known Christian broadcaster during the war with his screw tape letters, and for children there was soon to be the religious allegory of the Narnia books, the first of which, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, appeared in 1950. It could fairly be said that in this period there still existed an Anglican sensibility, a particularly English, sometimes grave, sometimes playful Christianity with its own art and thought. It may have been wispy and self-conscious, but it was also alive and argumentative, as it is not today. It was, of course, a limited and elite movement. Already saucy revelations in the Sunday papers were where most people turned when they thought of immorality, not to sermons. Were the British of the forties any more moral, or at any rate any more law-abiding, than the modern British? This is one of the hardest questions to answer. Conventions and temptations were just so different. On the surface, it was certainly a more discreet, dignified and rule-bound society. Divorce might have been becoming more widespread, but it was still a matter for embarrassment, even shame. Back in the early thirties, the average number of divorce petitions filed was below 4,800 a year. During the war, it jumped to 16,000. By 1951, with easier divorce laws, it was more than 38,000. In the forties and fifties, it still carried a strong stigma across classes and reaching to the highest. As late as 1955, when Princess Margaret wanted to marry Group Captain Peter Townsend, the innocent party in a divorce case, a Tory cabinet minister, Lord Salisbury, warned that he would have to resign from the government if it allowed such a flagrant breach of Anglican principles. Divorced men and women were not welcome at court. Homosexuality was illegal and vigorously prosecuted. Pornography was, for most people, almost unknown. Dirty books were on sale in a very few bookshops, but smut was still considered something mostly available for foreigners. The censorship of the theatre, dating back to Walpole's time, was taken extremely seriously. Playwrights had to submit their plays to the Lord Chamberlain's office at St. James's Palace, which would strike out double entendre or vulgar language. John Osborne had a letter back about his play The Entertainer in March 1957, with 16 alterations, such as page 6, alter turds, page 9, alter camp, the little song entitled The Old Church Bells Won't Ring Tonight Cause the Vicars Got the Clappers, substitute The Vicars Dropped a Clanger. Yet behind the firewall of censorship and law, there is plenty of evidence of a country just as sex-obsessed as it is now, and probably always was. The scatological outpouring in private letters and diaries is amazing, presumably the flip side of public discretion. The war had involved years of disruption to family life, broken relationships, a lot of quiet domestic adultery, and a boom in homosexual activity as tens of thousands of young, frustrated servicemen were let loose in darkened cities. One thing which would shock many people now, if they could be transported back, was the huge number of prostitutes working openly on the streets in the red-light areas of the cities, around Manchester city centre, Edgebaston in Birmingham, and Edinburgh's Leith Walk. In London, the so-called Hyde Park Rangers and Piccadilly Commandos were gangs of prostitutes working almost unmolested by the police and earning small fortunes from horny soldiers. Street crime had boomed particularly in London, and in the words of one of the capital's historians, by 1945 the country was awash with guns, illegally sold by American servicemen for £25 for a handgun, or brought back by British servicemen from abroad. 
Over the war years, though the population of London had dropped by some two million, the number of serious offences per head had doubled. The immediate post-war years saw real problems, partly because of the size of the black market, armed racketeers, and the continued presence of deserters, of whom many thousands were hiding out, including an estimated nineteen thousand from the U.S. Army. Because of frustration at the slow pace of demobilisation, desertions increased after hostilities ceased. Films of the time sometimes reveal a semi-anarchic wilderness territory of bombed-out homes and urban wasteland, which may be policed by gangs. Memoirs confirm that many children and adolescents, lacking parents or simply profiting from the shaky administration of a great city returning to life, more or less ran wild. Yet to get the tone of the times right, it is important not to forget that among the rebellions against rationing and official incompetence, Britain was basically law-abiding. In a country awash with cheap handguns, struggling with profound resentments about shortages and a thriving black market, and still containing many deserters on the run, by virtually every count available, serious crime then fell. The guns did not lead to spates of shootings. Croydon did not become Chicago. Armed crime in London involving guns fell from a high of 46 incidents in 1947 to just four cases in 1954. The number of people sentenced to prison fell by three thousand between 1948 and 1950. The murder rate fell. Indeed, overall serious crime fell by nearly five percent per head of population in the five years after the war. One historian of British crime concludes perhaps the most peaceful single year was 1951, with a low level of crime, especially violent crime, following a brief increase in bad behaviour following the war. Bearing out the trickiness of all statistics, this year is cited by others as a post-war crime peak. Yet the general picture holds up: people respected the police and came across serious crime rarely. The various scares about violent racketeers in London or lawless youths were mostly confined to the papers. Foreign observers talked about the orderly, calm, law-abiding nature of British society as something rare in Europe or around the world. All of this matters enormously to Britain's self-image now, since commentators and politicians often point to the post-war era as a time of Edenic peace and order, far removed from the world of machine-gun-toting police and drug gangs. Why was Britain so well-mannered and lawful? Some argue that tougher penalties are the most obvious reason. It is true that from 1946 until the year hanging ended. 1964, though it was legally abolished two years later, some 200 murderers were executed. Other grim punishments, notably flogging, were on the wane. They were ordered infrequently in the 50s. The last judicial birching was approved by the Conservative Home Secretary R. A. Butler as late as 1962, though the practice continued in the Isle of Man and very occasionally in Scotland. Yet, violent crime was on the increase again well before hanging was abolished. Its abolition cannot be the only reason. One obvious factor is that so many young men, the people who commit most crimes, were in the armed forces, latterly doing national service. This did not simply take people off the streets; it provided discipline and the habit of obeying and issuing orders. Two generations of boys were marched off for short haircuts and taught to polish their shoes by fathers who had been in the services. Then there was the relative lack of opportunity. 
A society in which people barely have enough to eat and possess few movable goods is rather less prone to street crime than one in which every teenager totes an expensive mobile phone, and every urban street is lined with parked cars. Finally, not to be underestimated simply because it cannot be measured, there was the spirit of the times. The war had shaken everyone's sense of security, not just serving troops, but the bombed and the evacuated and the bereaved as well. The Cold War would not diminish an underlying sense that life had become fragile. In these circumstances, it is hardly surprising that there was a profound post-war turn towards hearth and home, and a yearning for security, order, predictability, in the street, in the neighbourhood, if it could not be there in the wider world. These, then, in all their variety, patriotism, and hope, were the people whose fate was now in the hands of Clement Attlee and his ministers. We have looked at the difficulties facing the country and at the confused hopes of the new government. We know that the dream of a new Jerusalem, a socialist commonwealth, was never realised, and that some historians see the 1945 government as a wasted chance. It is time now to look at what this government actually did. What the Romans did for us. The post-war Labour government did the following things. It created the National Health Service. It brought in welfare payments and state insurance from the cradle to the grave. It nationalised the Bank of England, the coal industry, which was then responsible for 90% of Britain's energy needs and eventually the iron and steel industry too. It withdrew from India. It demobilised much of the vast army, air force and navy that had been accumulated during the war. It directed armament factories back to peaceful purposes and built new homes though not nearly enough. It oversaw a rationalisation and shake-up in the school system, raising the leaving age to 15. It kept the people fed, though, as we have seen, not excitingly fed. It started to fight communism in Korea and to develop the atomic bomb. It did these things against the background of the worst financial crisis that could be imagined at a time when its own civil servants were drawing up plans for starvation rationing if the money ran out, and while meeting its obligations to the malnourished people of other countries left bereft by war or crop failure. It harangued people to work harder and consume less. In its dying months, it did its best to amuse and entertain them too with the Festival of Britain. This combines to form the most dramatic tale in our peacetime history of a state organisation doing things it actually meant to. Without the war, clearly, there would have been no Attlee government as we remember it. With the war, though, some major social reform programme became inevitable. Wars shake up democracies violently, whether they win or lose. France and Italy saw a huge rise in communist influence after the war. Britain did not. But... Had a post-war British government tried to shrug off the hopes for a brave new world shared by so many and encouraged by everyone from archbishops to newspaper editors, what damage would have been done to Britain's political system? There could have been no return to the thirties. After the privately run chaos and underinvestment of pre-war Britain, people from almost all parts of the political spectrum thought central planning essential. Churchill's Tories would have done many of the things Labour did, just a little less so, and more slowly. By the time the old man returned to power again in 1951, he was promising to do more in some areas such as housing. The historian of the welfare state puts it like this. 
a country which had covered large tracts of East Anglia in concrete to launch bomber fleets, and the South Coast in Nissen huts to launch the largest invasion the world had ever seen, could hardly turn round to its citizenry and say it was unable to organise a national health service, that it couldn't house its people, or that it would not invest in education. What was done after the war to remake Britain was not inevitable. There were lots of battles and individual decisions on the way, but some such quiet revolution, some big grab of state power or extension of political will, was bound to have occurred. Beverage, Spin Doctor and Sage If there is one man who deserves a place in the pantheon of reform, outside party politics, it is that cadaverous, white-haired, publicity-mad, kindly, harsh, determined, and entirely impossible man, William Beveridge. He had left his wealthy upper-class circle to become a social worker in the East End of London, just like Clement Attlee. He then became a journalist and a civil servant before the First World War, a friend of intellectual socialists. He worked with the young Winston Churchill in the Liberal government, was one of the architects of rationing in 1916, and was later a Liberal MP. He knew Whitehall inside out, but left to become an academic, using the young Harold Wilson as his dog's body. This was a hard life. Beveridge was fanatically hard-working, rising at six for a cold bath before spending the rest of his day icily wallowing in cold statistics, writing and dictating. When war came again, Beveridge decided that government could not properly function without him, and pestered the Churchill team for a job. He was bitterly disappointed when Bevin, who disliked him intensely, finally shut him up with the offer of a review into the confusing array of sickness and disability schemes for workers. It was hardly glamorous or central to the war effort, and Beveridge apparently wept tears of rage and frustration when he was told. He set to work, however, and quickly decided there could be no coherent system of work benefits without looking, too, at the plight of the old, women at home and children. Workers were not alone, self-sufficient. They had families. They aged. He would have to devise a system to include everyone, while keeping the incentive to work. There would have to be family allowances and a national health service, but all this would be undermined if Britain returned to the era of mass unemployment. So the state would have to manage the economy to keep people in work. Giving Beveridge a limited remit and telling him to get on with it was like giving Leonardo da Vinci some paper and telling him to doodle away to pass the time. Earlier, we noted that the spirit of Oliver Cromwell was abroad in the England of the mid-forties. Beveridge was urged by his helper, soon to be his wife, Jessie Mayer, to adopt the language of Cromwell too. Soon he was stomping around telling anyone who would listen that he intended to slay five giants, want, he meant poverty, disease, ignorance, squalor, and idleness. Beveridge was addicted to what a later Briton would call spin. He used his position as a well-known broadcaster and his contacts with the press to drip out advance hints of the great report he was preparing, which he clothed in millennial language. He was also lucky in his timing. After the bleakest of the war years, Britain's fate was on the turn. There were inevitably plenty who were nervous or hostile. Leading industrialists protested that Britain was fighting Germany to keep the Gestapo out of our houses, not to build a costly welfare state. The Conservative Chancellor, Sir Kingsley Wood, briskly told Churchill that Beveridge's plan would be unaffordable. Whitehall mandarins resented his egotism and self-promotion. 
but he had the wind at his back. Popular expectations were too high, and memories of the thirties were too vivid for the white-haired giant killer to be stopped. Beveridge's was a long, detailed, number-filled report, longer than this book, with no pictures and very few adjectives. Yet there were queues in London on the day of publication, waiting to grab copies. It sold like no government report before, and very few since. Within a month, one hundred thousand copies had been bought. Eventually, six times as many were sold. It was distributed to British troops, snapped up in America, and dropped by Lancaster bombers over occupied Europe as propaganda. Look, here's the kind of thing a democratic society promises its people. A detailed analysis of the Beveridge report was discovered in Hitler's bunker at the end of the war, ruefully describing it as superior to the current German social insurance in almost all points. At home, unaware of the impact he was making in the unlikeliest places, Beveridge lectured. He wrote columns. He filled halls. He broadcast. A few months later, the cautious Churchill acknowledged that, far from distracting attention from the war effort, the Beveridge report was greatly boosting morale. He gave his first broadcast on domestic issues, accepting a broadening field for state ownership and enterprise in health, welfare, housing, and education. Noting that Britain could not have a band of drones in our midst, whether aristocrats or pub crawlers, and in a splendidly Churchillian twist, announcing that there is no finer investment for any community than putting milk into babies. The inevitable tumble that follows a report and white paper, the watering down, haggling, legislating, and organising, had to take place before the new national insurance system was finally brought into being in 1948. Yet it was a fantastic feat of organisation, which puts modern government to shame in its energy and speed. A new office to hold 25 million contribution records was needed, plus six million for married women. It had to be huge and to go up quickly. Prisoners of war were used to build it in Newcastle. Meanwhile, a propeller factory in Gateshead was taken over to run family allowances. The work of six old government departments was brought into a new ministry. More than half the staff who were transferred were still working away with typewriters and fountain pens in the bedrooms of 400 Blackpool hotels and boarding houses where they had been sent for the war. Forms were printed, box files assembled, new teams picked. Jim Griffiths, the Labour minister, pushing it all through and refusing to take no for an answer, wanted a thousand local national insurance offices ready around the country, decently decorated and politely staffed. After being told a hundred times that all this was quite impossible, he got it. Britain has been a subtly different and slightly less dangerous place to live in ever since. The level of help given was rather less than Beveridge himself would have wanted, and married women in particular were still treated as dependents. There was a lot to be argued about over the next fifty years. Still, from Beveridge's first rough notes in an office where he was thought to be safely out of harm's way, to a revolution in welfare. Sweeping away centuries of complicated, partial, and unfair rules and customs, it had been just six years' work. The NHS. Nye's simple idea. The creation of the National Health Service, which Beveridge thought essential to his wider vision, was an angrier task. Britain had had a system of voluntary hospitals raising their own cash. Which varied wildly in size, efficiency, and cleanliness. Later, it also had municipal hospitals, many growing out of the original workhouses. 
Some of these, in go-ahead cities like London, Birmingham or Nottingham, were efficient, modern places whose beds were generally kept for the poor. Others were squalid. Money for the voluntary hospitals came from investments, gifts, charity events, payments and a hotchpotch of insurance schemes. Today we think of ward closures and hospitals on the edge of bankruptcy as diseases of the NHS. The pre-war system was much less certain, and wards closed for lack of funds then, too. By the time the war ended, most of Britain's hospitals had been brought into a single national emergency medical service. The question was, what should happen now? Should they be nationalised or allowed to go back to their own way? A similar question mark hung over family doctors. GPs depended on private fees, though most of them also took poor patients through some kind of health insurance scheme. When not working from home or a surgery, they would often double up, operating in municipal hospitals where, as non-specialists, they sometimes hacked away incompetently. And the insurance system excluded many elderly people, housewives and children, who were therefore put off visiting the doctor at all, unless they were in the greatest pain or gravest danger. The situation was similar with dentistry and optical services, which were not available to anyone without the cash to pay for them. Out of this, Labour was determined to provide the first system of medical care free at the point of need there had been in any Western democracy. Simplicity is a great weapon. Nye Bevan's single biggest decision was to take all the hospitals, the voluntary ones and the ones run by local councils, into a single nationalised system. It would have regional boards, but it would all come under the Ministry of Health in London. This was heroic self-confidence. For the first time, a single politician would take ultimate responsibility for every hospital in the land, bar a tiny number of private ones. Herbert Morrison, the great defender of municipal power, was against this nationalisation, but was brushed aside by Bevan. A more dangerous enemy by far were the hospital doctors. What followed was the most important, most difficult domestic fight of the post-war Labour government's life. The doctors, organised under the conservative-leaning leadership of the British Medical Association, had it in their power to stop the NHS dead in its tracks by simply refusing to work for it. They were worried about their standing in the new system. Would they be mere state functionaries? And they were suspicious of Bevan, quite rightly. He had wanted to have the doctors nationalised too, all employed by the state, all paid by the state, with no private fees allowed. This would mean a war with the very men and women trusted by millions to cure and care for them. But Bevan, the red-hot socialist, turned out to be a realist and diplomatist. He began by wooing the top hospital doctors, the consultants. The physicians and surgeons were promised they could keep their lucrative pay beds and private practice. Bevan later admitted that he had stuffed their mouths with gold. Next, he retreated on the payment of the 50,000 GPs, promising they could continue being paid on the basis of how many people they were treating, rather than getting a flat salary. This wasn't enough. In a poll of doctors, for every one who said he would work in the new National Health Service, nine said they would refuse to take part. As the day for the official beginning of the NHS drew closer, there was a tense political standoff. Bevan continued to offer concessions, while also attacking the doctor's leaders as a small body of politically poisoned people, sabotaging the will of Parliament. Would the old Britain of independent professionals, with their cliques, status and fees, accept the new Britain of state control? They did, of course. 
More concessions and more threats brought them round. In the end, Bevan was backed by a parliamentary majority, and they were not. But it had been a long, tight, nasty battle. When the NHS opened for business on the 5th of July, 1948, there was a flood of people to surgeries, hospitals and chemists. Fifteen months later, Bevan announced that 5.25 million pairs of free spectacles had been supplied, as well as 187 million free prescriptions. By then, 8.5 million people had already had free dental treatment. Almost immediately there were complaints about the cost and extravagance, the surge of demand for everything from dressings to wigs. There was much anecdotal evidence of waste and misuse. There certainly was waste. The new bureaucracy was cumbersome, and it is possible to overstate the change. Most people had had access to some kind of affordable health care before the NHS, though it was patchy and working-class women had a particular difficulty in getting treatment. But the most important thing it did was to take away fear. Before it, millions at the bottom of the pile had suffered untreated hernias, cancers, toothache, ulcers, and all kinds of illness, rather than face the humiliation and worry of being unable to afford treatment. There are many moving accounts of the queues of unwell, impoverished people surging forward for treatment in the early days of the NHS, arriving in hospitals and doctors' waiting rooms for the first time, not as beggars, but as citizens with a sense of right. If there was one single domestic good that the British took from the sacrifices of the war, it was a health service free at the point of use. We have clung to it tenaciously ever since, and no mainstream party has dared suggest taking it away. End of Disc 3